You can support the Double Loop Podcast by contributing at patreon.com slash double loop podcast. Thank you to our supporters, and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Double Lip Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. Greetings to the Paw Manitoba. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. That's uh, T-H-E space P-A-S, the Paw in, in Manitoba. I'm not quite sure who's, who's listening out there, but it looks like someone discovered us and is kind of powering through a bunch of the episodes, so greetings uh, to our, well, right this time of year, chilly neighbors to the north. Yeah, that's fantastic. I, I, I love that we have these international listeners that are are listening. It's 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 pretty cool. Yeah, no, I I, I love that the way that technology makes the world world so small nowadays. Uh, it, it's just so simple just to to reach out and and uh, and contact people anywhere. Um, so, all right, Glenn, uh, my Cardinals just lost. I know you're. Uh, uh, Steelers were out. Steelers yeah. lost uh, the week before, but um, yeah, you know, on the pl- you know, sorry to some of the listeners out there, but at least New England lost, right? <laughs> I have to admit that is exactly how I feel. Uh, I, I was asked, <laughs> so who who do you hope um, you know now is going to be in the Super Bowl? And all I kept saying was, I don't care. Not New England. Not right. New England. Uh, I guess I'm gonna I'm gonna throw my uh, my hat in for. Um, for the Broncos and uh, and Peyton Manning uh, to to get back, uh, get his second one, but right and and then retire, and then, <laughs> right and then be done and then go he away, not get hurt anymore in, the, in this right. game. Oh, he'll never go away. He'll be doing commercials forever. Yeah. Yes, um, but anyway, so this we got to jump right in because it's probably going to be a longer episode. Uh, we kind of teased it last week. But uh, we're, we're finally going to uh, jump in and uh, do a Double Loop podcast comment episode on Making a Murderer. Yeah, right. Okay, so um, for listeners, um, I guess a couple of things. Uh, if you have not seen the documentary on Netflix, Making a Murderer, um, <laughs> you, you are alone because everyone else has. Um, if you have not seen it. Uh, we are going to have plenty of spoilers in this episode. We're just going to talk about it as if you have watched it. I'm also going to bring up a number of things, Eric, too, that sometimes I forget if it was in the documentary or additional stuff because I'll give a little bit of background on the case and some other things where I've um, I've either seen stuff outside of the documentary or done follow-ups or seen other stuff now that uh, I'll, I'll go in and out of both of those. So... I, I guess right. our, our canon. And, and I've, I've read some stuff too. And okay. Yeah, the, the other stuff to talk about that really wasn't in there. But right, yeah. all right. So our, we're not just going off the documentary as canon. There's other stuff that needs to be referred to. I think that is important when discussing the case. Okay, so um, again, for for listeners, this this was a um, this was a case of a homicide here in the United States uh, back in 2003. Uh, but what was particularly interesting, and this is how I first learned about this case, Eric, was um, around that time I was teaching at, at a community college, and one of the things I always had my students do each semester was to write a paper on a case where forensics was involved and helped solve the case. And since the Innocence Project was really just 
catching fire at about that point, a lot of the times my students would be writing up Innocence Project cases. And they'd bring in the Glendale Woodall case, which was this West Virginia Fred Zane case. Uh, they would bring in um, the Central Park Jogger case and uh, the Stephen Avery case, which was uh, this case about a man who was accused of uh, raping uh, a woman in Wisconsin, uh, this woman was jogging down a down basically a beach in in, uh, in a small town in Wisconsin, in the middle of in the Midwest of the United States, and um, he was accused of raping her. Uh, he was convicted essentially on eyewitness testimony for the most part, and uh, sentenced you know sentenced to decades in jail and then uh, later when DNA testing was available uh, DNA testing was done and it was not his DNA uh, that was found in the victim and so he was released uh, by the Innocence Project so this was a case that students often did of mine and then a couple years later I started seeing them talking about Stephen Avery um, being um, convicted of murder and went well wait a second I, I know this name Stephen Avery from this rape but now he later just a couple of years later after being released from jail was then uh, accused of and convicted of murdering a woman by the name of Teresa Halbach. So occasionally the students would do one or two of those, you know, would do one or the other uh, of those. And I just, you know, kept reading it through the students' eyes each time because I, I, they would either pick up a fact from a newspaper or pick up a fact from a website or whatever. Um, I was just always learning little details about that case, but it never, you know, really stood out to me other than what it appeared was the Stephen Avery had been released from jail. He was out for a couple of years and then committed this murder. And whenever I would speak to people from Wisconsin about this case, and here's what was interesting because eventually I get a chance to meet two investigators from the case. Uh, they had presented at the IAI right after I presented at the IAI in Wisconsin. Um, the what I always got from people who, that were close to this case was the Innocence Project actually made a mistake, that they had released this guy um, on DNA evidence, but he really wasn't, you know, wasn't very innocent, if you will. And in fact, the running theory, and this is what was so, you know, it never really stood out till watching this, was the running theory was that he might not even have necessarily been innocent in that first rape that he was convicted of. In fact, he may have been there, was the operating theory by some of the police officers, and that he may have known the actual perpetrator or was training him or they were working together. But the I was actually hearing from police officers that they actually thought he was still involved, that basically, yeah, he might not have, the evidence might not have supported it, but the Innocence Project essentially freed a bad person, and that bad person came out and ended up killing this, you know, young woman, Teresa Halbach. And when I sat through their presentation at the IAI, and I don't know if you sat through theirs, but that, that was where I no. You, okay, well that that was where I, I really had a chance to, you know, because it's a few. It was a few hours long to go through the evidence and see some of the evidence. And this is years before making a murder, before there's any focus on this. And frankly, I sat there, and I have to admit. Um, 
I was uh, probably a little distracted and not even paying that much attention because I just kept thinking, well, this is pretty open and shut. Oh, there's a big media circus to this, and yeah, there was all this stuff about <laughs> him, you know, having been let out the, you know, for, from the Innocence Project, but it's pretty open and open and shut case the way it was being presented by the two investigators who turn out to be the two investigators of course in the documentary uh the two uh the two people that do a lot of the interviews um Fassbender and um uh Weigert Weigart I think his name was yeah Weigert Weigert yeah the, the guys from the next door county the Calumet County right um sheriff's office so they are, uh, you know, they're the ones that were presenting at the II, and, and as I said, I just, I only knew this case from my students, and then sitting through this, it seemed pretty open and shut. And then, you know, back in December, I started hearing people talking about this documentary and just going nuts about it, and I said, well, I, I, gotta, I gotta see this. And um, sure enough, as I'm watching it, you get a very different perspective on the case, and it starts, oh, yeah. you know looking into things that make you go hmm all right so you and i have not had a chance to talk about the case at all and so you just uh last week told me that you wanted to do an episode on it um i was just because i i i get frustrated at at, uh documentaries like this where where it's a it's a very one-sided perspective on the case and and sure enough, that was that just bugged me the entire time. Was the the lengths that they went to to really make the viewers, you know, think uh, certain things or, or see it from from just this perspective? That, that's just that's a frustrating thing that I have with with lots of documentaries. But uh, I, I think it, it happened like I expected. It happened in this one too. Okay. Um, there there were some definitely some. Uh, some very interesting questions uh, what, that it brought up. No, I'm very interested in you know kind of talking through and seeing uh, different thoughts on this. All right. Well, I, w- I was just going to start with uh, the big question. So, do you think um, that the evidence supports that Stephen Avery was guilty of the murder of Teresa Halbach? The evidence. And I'm going to limit it to the physical evidence. I'd like to talk a lot about the physical evidence. Right. So just in a short answer, yes or no, do you, do you think that the physical evidence supports that he, he was guilty of, of the murder? I mean, it's a, it's a complicated answer. I, I think that despite there being lots of, of definite questions and issues that the documentary, documentary brought up, uh, I think overall I, I'm leaning towards yes uh, I, I do recognize that you know just watching a documentary is not going to make me an expert on this case. So you know, I don't really think my my view holds a, a, a lot of weight compared to others that are that have way more knowledge about this case. But um, yes, okay. Now whether that was enough to convict him with all of the problems with it, that's that's a tougher question. And I, I for that one, I I would have to just say I don't know. Okay. Well, that's interesting because I think he's completely not guilty because of the most important thing. There are no fingerprints found on the car, Eric. Remember, there were no latent prints on the car, so obviously not guilty. No, no, I'm kidding, obviously. I'm messing around. I, I just Or the bullet on the the bullet they found in the garage. No fingerprints on that. <laughs> no, no latent prints, right. White, white clean. <laughs> okay. No, 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 no. Um, I, I'm with you. Um, in fact, to me, if I just look at the physical evidence in the case, the physical evidence seems 
actually pretty pretty overwhelming. I mean, if you had this kind of physical evidence, the physical evidence um, we'll discuss in a moment, but I do agree with you that in a case like this, as well as a few other high-profile cases that have had documentaries about it, I do think as a separate issue, defense does an amazing job of raising reasonable doubt, which I hope to right. some point get to talking about what is reasonable doubt, does it really exist, uh, do we really... Or, or pre- scientific certainty. <laughs> Science, yes, yes that, that's another one of the things I want to talk about. Um, do we really presume someone to be innocent in, you know, until found guilty? Uh, do these things really exist? Um, but if we just talk about the physical evidence, the physical evidence that I, I can recall, um, obviously finding the bones on his property. Uh, right. You know, the, the charred bones. Uh, I, yep, go now, ahead. And the, the, the other thing I'd add in real quick before we kind of get through this list here is I don't think that the prosecution's theory as to what happened and who was there and how it, how it all went down is at all correct. I mean, they had multiple theories depending on what point in the investigation they were in and which trial they were in, but I don't think any of, of what they think happened actually happened. Um, You're referring to the Brendan Dassey part and whether or not she was sexually assaulted or whether or not Dassey, Um, okay, the the nephew was Whether or not, you know, her, her, whether or not she was stabbed or cut Mm -hmm. uh, inside the, the trailer in the bedroom, um, that she, whether or not she was shot in the garage or somewhere else, um, how where she was burned and how the bones were transported, and if Brendan Dassey was there or if any of the other family members were involved in some way, that's I'm not still not sure, but yeah, um, I mean they just kind of stopped their investigation uh, and went so much with Brendan Dassey's story with through his confession. There might be some truth in that confession, but who knows what part of it is and what part of it isn't. Right. I, I We'll definitely come back to the confession. So yeah. let's take that as, a, as, as definitely as a separate issue. Um, right. I, I do agree with you. There's plenty of questions, but that that's why I like keep coming back to the physical evidence because the physical evidence might tell a limited story and might not tell the whole story as you know as presented in the documentary, but the fact that there are bones there uh, the vehicle is found on the property. Uh, the vehicle has blood in it in six different places, not just one. They kept showing in the you know the, in the, the documentary, but in six different places they find her blood and make six swabs of that. And, and his blood and, um, and in, in, in yes. the car too. Yes, his blood is. Yes, sorry uh, if, if that wasn't clear. They find his blood in six different places. They find her blood in the back of the vehicle, um, in, right. the, in the rear of the vehicle. Right, that's, yeah. Uh, They also found that the car battery had been disconnected and that um, under the hood, when they had checked the latch of the hood and swabbed the hood, uh, they had found um, what they believed to be touch DNA, nothing visible, not like the potential blood stains within the vehicle, but potential, you know, uh, touch DNA, if you will, Uh, which was Stephen Avery's. And that's never mentioned in the documentary. Never mentioned um, in the documentary, correct. Right, so those who have just seen the documentary and that's it, that would be a little surprising, but because yeah. uh, that comes up as a question is, was this blood planted? Um, it, you know, But there is also this other DNA, non-blood, basically, DNA found uh, under, the, uh, under the hood on the latch. 
I mean, even if considering all the other blood planted, you know, that that's still, you know, pretty kind of damning evidence um, that, you know, maybe def- would probably be harder to, to plant than, uh, than the blood itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, which goes along with, for example, the key. You know, they found the key to the vehicle in his room, although questions right. about that arise. They do find his DNA, and again, not visible blood DNA, but they find his DNA on the key, um, and only his DNA on the key. And, um, you know, uh, they also then, of course, find a bullet in the garage that has Teresa's DNA on it. Um, and the bullet, uh, this is not said in documentary, the bullet was matched to a rifle in Stephen Avery's bedroom. So, to me, you've got firearms evidence located on the property, you've got the key, you've got the vehicle, you've got blood in the vehicle of both, you know, victim and suspect, um, and you've got the bones. Um, even if we can begin to accept that some of these were either manipulated, as they suggest, or... Um, and just in some way, I, I, you know, some of the theories presented by defense, you know, that the police were doing, you'd have to accept that every one of these things had some manipulation done to them. And that, to me, just takes it too far that I, I simply can't believe that all of these things are just a massive setup by one or multiple people, either the police, um, who were altering the scene to make it seem like he was more guilty, um, and the actual perpetrator, who was essentially trying to um, take advantage of the police's, if you will, as the documentary says, narrow-minded focus towards Stephen Avery. So you'd have to have multiple people that were getting so lucky to have just presented <laughs> all of this evidence in a fashion that leaves any trace of them involved in this and you know, leaves this evidence um, looking like he did it. The The other thing about planting evidence that really kept coming out to me, and Eric, I don't know how many crime scenes you did, but the one thing that kept striking me about planting evidence is it is really, really risky. Um, you have to first make sure that your DNA or fingerprints or evidence don't show up in it. And secondly, right. it's so risky because they weren't in control of this scene, especially initially. They had no idea what had been photographed, what had been filmed, what had been touched, what was memorialized before essentially, quote-unquote, planting evidence. And that, to me, is what's so risky, is that you don't know what they have already... Well, you don't know what the crime scene team has already photographed or video, uh, you know, videotaped. So if you were to then alter something that was clearly shown one way on the video, and now you're altering it to make it look another way, that to me is extremely risky. In a homicide investigation, you, I just, I don't, when you, you're on the guy's property, you found the car and bones on the property, why do you need to manipulate it that much more in your direction? It just, it doesn't make sense to me and seems unnecessarily risky. Well, how about, the, real quick, let's, let's uh, just go over the for the people that are um, that are on the other side of the fence because uh, there's there's plenty of, of viewers of this documentary that uh, that are on basically the defensive side and that are going to be you know shocked and inflamed that that we're leaning the other way um, but because so let's just real quick go through their explanation for all these uh, so the the theory from defense and and uh, a lot of supporters are that uh, a blood tube uh, that was collected from Stephen Avery in, I believe, 2002 mm-hmm. um, was 
uh, was in the like clerk of the court's office uh, in an open box uh, filled with a bunch of paperwork and stuff. And this, um, the evidence box had the blood tube, uh, had the seals cut. And when they open it up, the blood tube uh, inside has a syringe hole through the uh, the purple cap uh, on the top of that. So right. the theory is that that's where his blood came from that's found in the car. Um, they think that uh, uh, the Lieutenant Lank um, or someone else from um, the uh, you know the local county sheriff's office that was being sued uh, by Stephen Avery for the uh, the past wrongful conviction um, had gotten a hold of that key somehow and uh, and dropped it into his room um on the like fifth or sixth day of of the search of the property after he'd been there like every day uh even though in the news it came out that he wasn't that that county wasn't supposed to be involved at all in the investigation do you do you do you buy that at all or do you buy the fact or or does it make sense to you that when you insert the blood into the tube that's when you pierce that rubber septum to insert the needle to draw your blood. That's why they have that as a rubber septum, so you can pierce it and put the needle through it. I mean, otherwise, why not just put a solid cap on the tube? I've, I've had my blood drawn for, you know, bloodstain pattern analysis ex- experiments at work and other things. Whenever a phlebotomist would come along, they would just, they'd have several tubes ready to go, and they would just take the, you know, the needle and puncture, right. you know, puncture the septum to get the blood into the tube and move on to the next one. Okay. Uh, so then the, the key, the key found in the, uh, in his bedroom, mm-hmm. you know, the, um, the stories are that, that in the search they're throwing stuff around and and tossing bookshelves around and you know here it comes just kind of tumbling out from behind this bookshelf or desk after it was moved around right and then lands right there um, you know in just total plain view right in an uh, area why, that presumably they had searched right because that's why they didn't see it like at all before right I don't know that's you look at it and you're like, that's just, yeah, um, it's, it's so tough to explain. And then also just his DNA and not hers as like the owner who handled it like every day. Yeah. Um, that it's, I don't know. It, it, it you do kind of go, it's one of the, as CNC music factory would say, it's a thing that makes you go, Hmm. <laughs> you know, um, I, I, I have to agree that, you know, I've seen some pretty weird stuff at scenes you know, I I'm willing to accept that. Yeah, so I I do have to admit that that is one of the that key is one of the things that really stands out as an oddball thing. You know, I right. I, I I can understand what, where defense is coming from on that one, especially when you did as I just said earlier, planting evidence at a scene is difficult because you don't know what's already been photographed, and they had photographed that area, and you know, right. with the, the the slippers there. But you know, then later it you know it they would have had to have been either under the slippers or in the slippers or behind the bookcase. Could that have happened? Uh, yeah, it just it does seem a little. It's it does seem suspicious. Actually, the key for me is probably there. There's two whole. There's two things in the whole series that really stood out as well. That's really bizarre. 
and the key was one of them. And because it was it was during their testimony, I don't know if you remember when Colburn was testifying, he was talking about, and then we saw the key, uh, Lang pointed out the key, and we all knew right away what it was. And, you know, so we, you know, we knew right then and there that that was the key. Do you, re- you remember that point in the testimony, him talking yeah. about it? Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm thinking back to when I was doing crime scenes and when I'm doing searches and things like that. My first question, you know, out of this would be, well, how did you know that that was the key? I would not have known that was the key. I wouldn't have known <laughs> right. that I was you're, looking for that key in her bedroom or in, in a his 40, bedroom. A 40 acre plot with literally hundreds of cars, right? Yeah, th- There's th- probably thousands. a few keys around. Yes. You're at an auto salvage. Why would you know, it wasn't like it says to even Toyota RAV4? It's a Toyota key. All you would have seen was Toyota. Right. Um, so the, their recognition of it immediately, recognizing the significance of it, that surprises me because the first thing I would have done is guess what? Pick it up. I would have picked it up, looked at this, and asked anyone, hey, is, does anyone know what this key is to? Or anyone check this key to see if this is the key? Um, and then, of course, I would have tested the key in the vehicle and went, oh, well, guess what? We just found it. I would have gone back to the scene, put it back approximately where I found it, put in my notes stating I had moved it, not knowing it was the key. We've taken a photograph of where I remember it approximately to be, and I would have had to have you know, backtracked a little but been transparent about that. There's no way I would have known just by looking at it unless, and here's the thing, unless they knew what the key looked like because the key was on that blue nylon fob thing and so they may have had the other half of that fob from Teresa's apartment or from something so they might have known they were looking for a Toyota key on a blue fob if they knew that then I can accept that explanation but they never talked about it they never said we knew it because it it went to the other part of the fob there's a photograph of the other part of the fob so maybe they did have it maybe that's how they knew but I did find that whole sequence to be very suspicious unless they knew exactly what they're looking for because they had the other half of the fob or they knew someone had described that key on the blue on the blue you know the blue fob chain part right uh so the the next uh piece is the the bullet that they find in the garage with mm. uh, Teresa Hallbach's DNA on it and the DNA uh, evidence where the control failed this was one of the things i really right. wanted to talk to you about i i find this to have been pretty fascinating <laughs> right the the one test where the control fails and that this is you know basically because of contamination uh and and this is the one that that comes up positive but first uh, the you know the kind of the defense theory is because they don't find this in the initial search at the beginning of November. Uh, it's the beginning of March uh, when they do another search of uh, the garage that they they come up with this bullet uh, and a few other bullets too. Um, but this is the only one that actually has her DNA on it. Yeah, and if I remember, they specifically are now looking for the bullet as it's coming out of uh, some of the. Um discussions with uh the nephew so this it's it's from the interviews of the nephew that they then start you know going back and and reinvestigating certain areas based on his interview which is why they go back to look for the bullet okay yeah the defense side of this is well they have they've had this rifle uh for months now so um one of the you know the the frame-up guys uh checks out this rifle 
uh, shoots it to get the bullet to have um, you know the, the you know, striations and stuff that match to this to his rifle uh, go somehow get her DNA on it and then go and throw it into the garage for for uh, someone to find later on that's not just now getting um, Stephen Avery's DNA out of this blood tube uh, this is now getting uh, the victim's DNA somehow right. uh, onto it and um, I'm assuming they, they don't really have a, a good theory as to how that happened because you know, it wasn't presented in the documentary, and I'm pretty sure that anything that would have furthered this theory would have been presented in the documentary. So right. that's another one that kind of stretches things of, I don't know, that's... Um, it, it's asking for you to accept too much of a conspiracy to a frame this right. guy. Right. right. And, and, I, and I just can't accept all of these as potential... I just, frame ups. I just I can't accept. I just can't accept that. And then on top of that, like you said, the DNA lab in uh, the, the state crime lab for Wisconsin, uh, the analyst um, she does have a good contamination in her control sample. She gets her DNA into the control sample, but the actual test sample uh, is uh, you know is basically still clean without contamination, although consumed. Uh, Although fully consumed, and it matches, um, you know, Teresa Halbach. So you'd also then have to, even if you didn't get her DNA evidence onto the bullet, just for the, the state lab to, to, to check, you'd also now get a, um, uh, a forensic scientist at the state lab in Madison, was it? I'm, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Uh, is where she worked, um, and not in like Milwaukee, uh, to you know, somehow mix up samples or, or somehow get also in on this conspiracy to frame them up. Right. Now it is questionable. The <laughs> one thing that, that you kind of, huh, this is the only case that, you know, this is the DNA tech lead, uh, of, of the crime lab. Uh, I'm pretty sure she said that this is the only case where you had the control fail that you still reported at a positive result. Right. Uh, if there... that ever happened, every time, other time that had happened, uh, they threw out the test and said, um, nope, you, you can't make a positive match. Inconclusive. Or, you have to say inconclusive. Right. Um, yeah, I thought that was pretty fascinating that their policy, that their own policy was when the control fails and you know, you've consumed the sample, that the policy is to report inconclusive and in this case they essentially got an exception to their own sop to report right. out essentially the matching profile to the victim um what, what did you think about that i had i had some thoughts about that uh if if, if it's if the sop allows for that situation um but it didn't even seem like that it was allowed for that they had to just make up a total one-time exception on on this case well most Um, most quality manuals i mean your quality system manual usually allows that in certain circumstances you can deviate from your sop with you know with uh when it's reasonable to do so when it you know makes sense to do so and you get permission from appropriate people to report you know, an exceptionally different way from your SOPs, but you have to have all these things in place. I, we just did this in our agency just a couple of weeks ago, and, and, and you know, it was it made sense to do it that way. And now we're changing the SOP to allow for the change that we just made in this one exception. It comes up from time to time. Uh, but again, another 
another really good point to raise on defense. Mm-hmm. Um, and and this is where you kind of go from, you know, the evidence being there just to support the theory that um, that he killed her versus the reasonable doubt uh, starting to creep in right. with with a, a little thing on basically almost every little piece of evidence. So then you start going, well, yeah, now, now, you know, doubt is starting to creep in, but then you know, where is that line and, and, uh, and how do you, you pass that and work around that? Yeah. The, the thing that I didn't, I didn't care for as much was their explanation of the deviation. I mean, I thought it was good that prosecution fronted the issue and got right into it rather than just blow over and let defense bring it up. And he got right, right. into it. Um, I guess again, this is arm armchair quarterback stuff, you know. <laughs> on on the st- but they did have time to sit down and prepare, and they could have gone over this. And I guess my feeling is what they should have just said, and what the DNA analyst or the forensic scientist could have just said is the reason that we made an exception in this case was because we understood that from time to time. Our controls get contaminated, especially in 2002, 2003. We were just waking up to the fact that the DNA tests were were that sensitive. We were starting to see DNA analysts shedding into the the samples. We thought talking around samples, um, you know, or blowing on samples could introduce it. But then we were beginning to realize, no, no, just not wearing a hairnet, not wearing a face mask, just being anywhere around the DNA evidence if you're a shedder. Um, having extra people, you know, we used to give tours through our DNA lab. People would come walking right. through. Um, I just don't think we realized around that time the potential sensitivity of these techniques as they were getting better and better in the early 2000s. But that all said, I I think I would have appreciated if the analyst had just said from time to time these controls fail. In this instance, we made an exception because this evidence was exceptional, because it was important and did tend to actually support or prove an important element of this case. And we didn't want to just say nothing about the evidence. So in this instance, when we understood why the control might have failed and it didn't jeopardize the evidence itself, we made the exception, but we were being transparent about it because of how crucial this piece of evidence was, as opposed to not letting the jurors know anything about it and just simply saying the test was inconclusive and not give them any information. that We right. felt that they had a right to know in this test it did associate with Teresa Halbach, but the control did fail. So you have to put that in perspective. But I think what should have just been talked about was because it was such a, a critical piece of evidence, we didn't want that story lost in the entire story of the physical evidence uh so i think in general just um of all the the evidence collected uh, again i think another side of again presenting i'm kind of presenting the side i don't agree with (laughs) um, uh, more but um is basically in the investigation and the collection of all this evidence they fucked up i mean (laughs) the 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 shoveling of the bones uh, out of the the fire pit instead of uh, you know a more careful collection uh, yeah, of that evidence that's bad the 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 involvement of the people being sued and being there every day after calling in an outside uh county to run the investigation uh, I, yeah um, that that's also bad <laughs> the 
they they and then just this whole random searching i mean I, yeah i know it's a it's a junkyard it's 40 acres it's huge it's going to take you i get it it's going to take a week to go through the place but to go back into the same buildings over and over again instead of just going through and doing a thorough search uh once or maybe twice but like five six times and just the 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 entire collection of evidence was so bad that um, that could have and maybe should have uh, actually resulted in a not guilty verdict with with everything that happened there and and that's just just another uh, side of things but you know there still is valuable information that they did collect but there could have been so much more that would have made this so much more clear cut uh, if they had just done things the way they should have yeah i i would agree with you that their decisions in this case potentially jeopardized the a conviction in this case which again i do feel was the right decision by the jury based just on the physical evidence but their decision and their involvement um i do i absolutely agree with you jeopardized things that did not need to be jeopardized that clouded a relatively clear pool right Right. All right. All right. Well, let's uh, let's break for now. We'll come back uh, do uh, next week another uh, round of this, uh, so that we can uh, you know just keep talking more and more about this case, and um, uh, hopefully you guys are enjoying this and can you know write into us some of your thoughts or some of the other things that we've missed. Uh, but we'll we'll keep going in the next episode uh, on more of making a murderer. Uh, so uh, with that, uh, write into us, uh, Glenn at EliteForensicServices.com or Eric at RayForensics.com Listen on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher and we'll see you guys next time. Bye everybody, have a good week. Music provided on this podcast by Mivio's Music Alley. Check it out at music.mivio.com